Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Ukraine's silent genocide. We'll be hearing from Byline Times writer Ian Overton, freshly returned from Ukraine, about how Russia's invasion has led to a plummeting birth rate. Understandable at a time of war, perhaps, but there have been direct attacks on maternity hospitals in Ukraine, leading many there to suspect a darker motive. Before we hear from Ian, a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then, uh, Ian Overton, who's been sending regular dispatches to the Byline Times and the Byline Supplement from Ukraine, freshly returned now to the UK. I want to talk about these claims in Ukraine, Ian that there is a silent genocide going on. But first, just give me your general impressions. Well, it's been my first time since the Great Invasion. It's my seventh time back there. And since 2014, when obviously there was the annexation of Crimea and then Donetsk and Luhansk were taken by Russian military-backed separatists, I've always felt that Ukraine was heading towards some very, very dark place. And for Byline, I I reported regularly on this sort of hidden war. And obviously the hidden war has now become a very public war with all of the major cities in Ukraine having been attacked by Russian aggression. And it's a very unequivocal war when you go there. I mean, it's very difficult to try and see in any way a critique of Ukraine You have had organizations like Amnesty International comment on uh, the Ukraine military embedding itself in civilian population areas. But I always feel that ultimately this is an entire nation forced to become a military. And the more you look at it, the more you realize that it is a fight for their very survival. And on an explicit level, you're looking at their death tolls from Russian use of explosive weapons in towns and cities. You're looking at conscripts and young men being killed on the front line. And one of the the things I kept on noticing was men with lower limb injuries walking the streets or in wheelchairs on the streets in Kiev and Kharkiv, where clearly there's been a large number of young men who have been harmed in the frontline fighting, who are recuperating in the back lines now. And all of this is reasonably well reported on in the public domain. We we do know that Ukraine is suffering and on a daily basis you're getting reports. And of course, there is always the fear of war weariness. But the things I'm always drawn to in my conflict reporting is not just the explicit face of war. And I've been to enough front lines to understand what war does to the soul and to the human body. But I'm also interested in the underreported stories or the silent stories. Now, the word genocide is a very tricky one to be used in Ukraine, and people have used it in a way that may not accord with the principles of what is legally a genocide. And this is something that needs to be debated. However, when you really look at what the concept of genocide means, it is the attempt to target a population based on their ethnicity. 
And it's very difficult not to see how the Russians' continual bombardment of towns and cities is not an attempt to disrupt the notion of Ukrainian identity, to not harm Ukrainians merely for being Ukrainians. And we've spoken, Ian, before on the podcast about how Putin and others in Russia, those sometimes given access to mainstream television channels, talk down the idea of Ukrainian culture and language, a sense that in official circles in Moscow, there is a belief that Ukrainians are somehow inferior, that they don't have the same legitimacy as Russians. So the idea that underlies genocide, the belief of an inferiority of another group of people as defined by their ethnicity, is very much alive in this conflict. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's slightly ironic that some of the greatest writers and thinkers of the 20th century and 19th century, who many believe are Russians, were actually Ukrainians. And it just happened because under the Soviet era, the Ukrainian sense of national identity was so swamped that people who were great writers there were just labelled Russians. I mean, in 1919, people found speaking Ukrainian in the streets of Kyiv were liable to be executed. So there is a purposeful attempt. You, you, the Ukrainian is no longer taught in the schools of Crimea, for instance. And I've got a story coming out today in Byline Times, which is basically looking at the way that museums have been systematically targeted and the resilience that I've witnessed in museum culture, trying to preserve notions of national identity and a link to the past. One of the most interesting museums I went to was one in Kyiv, which was an exhibition called Ukraine Crucified. When you stood in the central dais of the exhibit, you witnessed a cross that had been made out of an Mi-24 Russian helicopter that was placed in a kind of an altar shape. There was a shattered icon of a of Christ in the center, which had been hit by a Russian bombardment. And as you stood there looking at it, there was a large mirror that reflected yourself back, back at you. And you suddenly realized that this was a museum commemorating the deaths of a war that was still very much ongoing. And as you left the museum, there was a little poster that said that these were the nearest five bomb shelters. And it's quite strange visiting a museum of a war where the war is still unfolding. And we focus on, as journalists, on the dead. And that's understandable. We focus on the tangible. But what I sought to do in my recent trip was focus on maybe the intangible. And this is not just the presence of life and death, but the absence of life. So I had been to a seminar a few months ago in London where a Ukrainian academic had said that they were very concerned that Ukraine was entering what she referred to as a death spiral in terms of demographics. The Post-Soviet Ukraine had, like many post-Soviet countries, a real problem with high male mortality rates from things like alcoholism and poor diet, but also a slow and creeping reduction of babies being born across the board. And conflict, in some cases, like Blitz Babies, conflict does give an, eject, an injection into a community and cause people to, to reproduce for fear of the father or the husband being killed in a conflict. However, in Ukraine, a salient feature, of course, has been 
tens of thousands of young women leaving Ukraine to going to live in Western Europe. And this sudden shift of large numbers of women on top of an already declining birth rate, on top of the inherent concerns of those remaining about having a baby in the middle of war has meant that the birth rate in some areas dropped, at least in the early days of the invasion, by as much as 70%. And now people estimate it's around 30 to 40% below what it should be. And you quote a doctor in your piece for Byline Times, a Dr. Manjula, who says, I think it is a genocide. The lower birth rate is because of the war. And in my opinion, and in the opinion of many Ukrainians, it is a form of silent genocide. Yes. And this is a a phrase you hear again and again from people who are obstetricians or, or demographers, that they represent it as a genocide. Now, there's no easy classification of the absence of births as a genocide in the UN framing of what constitutes a genocide or international humanitarian law. It's very difficult to frame the absence of something. But there's nothing sadder than walking through a maternity hospital and hearing no babies cry. There is something deeply discomforting about that. Which was something that you noted yourself as you were walking through a maternity ward. Just tell us about that, where that was and, and what that felt like. I went to a number of maternity wards in Kiev, and these are sort of post-Soviet hospitals that have that kind of initial grim patina when you go in. It's sort of peeling paint and very, very utilitarian infrastructure. But then when you go up into the maternity wards, they've all been refitted, and some of them are actually incredibly nice. Internal spa pools and top-of-the-range equipment and very, very, very European in its approach to to obstetrics and medicine. But there was room after room with brand new equipment, but totally empty. And I met one young woman who had just given birth, and she said it was a gift from God, but what could she do? But when I spoke to the senior obstetrician there, she told me that, at least in the early days of the conflict, she was performing far more abortions than she was live births. And that a lot of women said, you know, why would I want to give birth as the Russians were fast approaching? And this was when there were still lots of births happening, because obviously the conception had occurred when there was no invasion. But what you saw in the immediate aftermath of the invasion was a lot of people leaving for Poland and other parts of Germany. And you saw a slight birth rise there of Ukrainian women giving birth overseas. But now the deeper question is that a lot of these young women are now embedded in communities in Britain, in in Germany, in France, and they may be cultivating relationships there with local men. And this means that they may be giving birth, but they're not giving birth to Ukrainian babies. Now, I don't want to get hyper-nationalistic about this because, you know, you can both be a British baby and and a Ukrainian baby at the same time if your mother's Ukrainian and your father's British. But there's a fundamental point about where they will be raised and what the future of a country is. And we've had a lot of hand-wringing about, let's say, the plummeting Japanese birth rates. Russia has a plummeting birth rate. But that is almost natural entropy of people fearing bringing a child into a world with global warming, etc., etc. Whereas this is an enforced decline of a birth rate, forced by Russian weaponry, forced by the Russian invasion. And one other aspect of this, Ian, and you've touched on it a little earlier, has been that the men who stay behind and fight are sometimes mutilated. It 
maybe impossible for them to father children. So you've got the departure of many women of what we might term childbearing age from the country, but some of the potential fathers who were left are unable to father children because of the direct consequences of the conflict. Absolutely. A few years ago, I hosted a, an event at Chatham House in London because I run a charity called Action on Armed Violence. And we examined the issue of genital trauma in British soldiers in Afghanistan. And the use of improvised explosive devices and landmines there meant that the blast wave, particularly if they were sat in a Land Rover, would come through the bottom of the car and the first impact would, would be their, their genitals. This is why in Vietnam, it was infamous that lots of men would sit on their helmets as they were in helicopters, because that would be some form of protection. This is one of the most complicated and often underreported elements of conflict because it is so deeply traumatic, the notion of a young, virile and healthy soldier losing their genitals is almost too horrific to contemplate from many perspectives. And it's one of the things that is certainly happening in Ukraine. When you see the adverts on the trains there about prosthetic limb replacement, for young soldiers who have had very bad lower limb injury, you know that it's not just their ankles or their knees that have been blown away, but the shrapnel would have gone upwards and, and harmed soft tissue. And that is deeply underreported. Now, one obstetrician told me that they are setting up sperm banks for soldiers potentially to ensure that their DNA can be preserved going forward. But, you know, th th this is a country that is trying to fight off a, a thousand different challenges at any single moment. So there's not going to be an orchestrated government sperm bank campaign for each soldier going over. It will be very much done on an ad hoc basis. But furthermore, it's not just about sort of genital harm. It's also about whether uh, young women would want to marry a man who might be in a wheelchair or might have significant harm. I saw a picture yesterday of a young Ukrainian journalist who I had met while out there and uh, she I think is in a relationship with a, a young soldier who's lost both of his legs and they seemed happy on the hospital bed from which the picture had taken but I think that there are many many more young men with significant injuries who won't have a loving partner to be with them and the divorce rate in Ukraine is 70 percent it's one of the highest rates in the world. So there isn't necessarily the cultural structure of long-term marriages in the face of anything. And this combined with a whole variety of other issues, such as women leaving to go and live elsewhere, and maybe then enjoying the economic changes and you know living in a country that doesn't face war, might mean that this is a silent genocide. And I don't use that word lightly, but the absence of things is one of the things which I keep on going back to Ukraine over the years to report on the the things that do not get reported on and it's interesting that byline Times came out with this story about birth rates last week and then today the BBC runs a major story on it so you know we we were there first reporting on this but my trip was really to try and find other stories that weren't being reported on. And the other thing which I spent a lot of time doing was interviewing journalists about how they were reporting on the war and the trauma that they were experiencing. And that's something which I'll be writing up this week for a piece very soon in Byline, which is really an examination of how an entire generation of journalists 
in Ukraine, whether they were fashion journalists or lifestyle journalists or local reporters, are now all war reporters. And that has obviously been deeply transformative for the journalistic community. One final thought, Ian, this was from another dispatch that you sent from a town that had been badly damaged by Russian missiles called Sultivka, which is a suburb of Kharkiv, I think, a former dormitory town for Russia when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And what I thought was interesting there, and you just touched on this by quoting one of the local residents who was Russian speaking, as many people are in Ukraine, that doesn't mean that their belief in a Ukrainian state is in any way compromised. But this particular Russian speaker that you referenced seemed to be in denial about the horrific death toll in his own town, seemed to be in denial about the evidence in front of his own eyes. Indeed, it was quite shocking. A few years ago, I was speaking to a very senior commander in the Ukrainian military in charge of the telecoms. And she was saying to me, one of the big problems of the Ukrainian government was facing was that an awful lot of people could not get Ukrainian terrestrial TV or even satellite TV, that they were getting Russian television beamed into their homes. And I once went to the home of somebody who was terribly mutilated by a Russian missile, and they were sat in there on their bed. This was down near Kramatorsk, and they were sat on their bed just watching Russian chat shows. They had no access to Ukrainians. And that's something which is a salient feature, particularly of the border towns. Kharkiv is around 20 kilometers from the Russian border, and it means that the missiles hit before the air raid sirens start going. But when you go into homes there, they are consuming Russian material. Now, this has changed slightly since the invasion. And one of the things that I noted in Kharkiv was that a lot of people who may previously have been speaking Russian were now only trying to speak Ukrainian. So my translator said that there were some people who were speaking very poor Ukrainian, but they were trying to make the effort. And this might be a form, strangely, that in the middle of war, the Russian attempt to try and stamp out Ukrainian identity has only served to crystallize it. And actually that you're getting a more vibrant sense of what it means to be Ukrainian. But this information is still spread widely in the towns and people have very, very torn loyalties. So their parents might be Russian, they may have long families in Russia, but it, it might mean that they don't want to believe that their neighbors, their relatives are bombarding them. Having said all of that, the character I met who basically seemed to be in denial of the very thing that was impa impacting him, I also met others who had very strong ties to Russia who were no longer speaking to their Russian families. I've heard this again and again, actually, that ties with Russian relatives, ties with parents have been disrupted, that people have cut off ties. And it's difficult to really tell uh, your audience without them going there what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis living there. And the real feature is the air raid sirens. These are going off again and again and again. And occasionally you might hear strange blasts in the distance and you're not sure if it's thunder or if it's the drop of rockets. But the air raid sirens serve to disrupt sleep on a constant basis. And you may only get two or three hours of proper sleep a night because you're being woken up and you have to go and sleep in the bathroom or the corridor. And this is a nation that has had this for months and months and months. The sleep deprivation and everyone's drinking coffee left, right and centre. 
And within there, you're getting people obsessed with their phones. Everyone is on their phones all the time, looking at the news, looking at what's happening. People speak about the war naturally and repeatedly, but it is a constant feature. And this creates a kind of a fever dream of any reporting from this place. You're trying to work out what the real truths are, what the real facts are. And it's not difficult to believe that people who might be sleep deprived, as well as receiving Russian propaganda, if they only speak Russian, may be thinking, you know, conspiratorial thought. And there were many people who who won't want to speak to journalists because they might think that you're a spy or something. There is conspiracy theories that are rampant, as you find in any war zone around the world. But having said all of that, I was very moved by the repeated articulation of stoicism, of a belief in the righteousness of what they were facing, that these were Ukrainians steeped in a sense of their own national identity. And yes, they may have strong links to Russia, but the more you begin to dig, the more you realize there is a fundamental difference in the approach, in the lifestyle, in the philosophy, in the dress, in the eating habits, et cetera, et cetera, of the Ukrainians from the Russians. The Russian claim the Ukrainians are Russian in many parts is, as far as I'm concerned, not something borne out by analysis and not something borne out by my repeated trips, both to Ukraine and to Russia, and witnessing the fundamental difference between the two. Ian, fascinating to speak to you. Thank you so much. You can read Ian's dispatches at bylinetimes.com and in due course in the Byline Times newspaper. My name is Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. If you want to support this podcast and reporting by Ian and loads of the other great reporting that goes on at Byline Times as well, please take out a subscription. Head over to bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. If you have already taken out a subscription, thank you very much indeed. This has been a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. We'll see you again very soon. But for now, bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers.